0: Father, we're deeply grateful for the grace you've given to us in your son, Jesus, and we pray that you would allow us, enable us to respond to that grace by loving others in the way that we see embodied here by the Good Samaritan. Help us this day to feed on Jesus Christ in word and sacrament, and so we commend ourselves to your love and care this morning, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. You may be seated. Let me set up my timer so I don't go long-winded. It really does help, because uh, I can tend to get lost in my thoughts. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right. I'm glad that you're here this morning. Uh, go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to our gospel reading from Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. You can turn there in the, the Burgundy Pew Bibles there. You find that or on your app, on your phone, or wherever you, if you have a Bible with you. That's great. In this reading, we heard one of the most familiar stories in all of Scripture, that of the Good Samaritan. And this morning, I want us to situate the story of the Good Samaritan, certainly within the context that Luke provides, but also within the context of the sermon from last week. Last week, we looked at Paul's admonition for Christians to practice burden-bearing love. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Remember that from last week, from Galatians 6, verse 2. So last week we looked at Paul's admonition for Christians to practice burden-bearing love as an expression of walking in step with the Spirit of God. And for Paul, burden-bearing love is the antidote to division and strife within the church because it resists one of the chief causes of such division, namely conceit or pride in our hearts. And we concluded last week by identifying two practices that come out of the two qualities of this type of love, that root out conceit in our hearts, freeing us to embody this type of love. And those two practices were this, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus and his burden-bearing love that he's given for you, right? That was that quality, the quality of it, of that love being cross-shaped, being sacrificial. And then that second practice was confession, confession. When we recognize the conceit in our hearts and confess this to God, it begins to produce in us a self-aware humility a self-aware humility and that is necessary for us to resist conceit right paul says keep watch over yourselves don't think more of yourselves than you ought to think these two practices then for us become the preparation the prep work for building such love in our lives just as the property across the street where these apartments are going up they prep the ground, all this initial work that's done with the, the leveling of the ground and all that to the foundation that's laid, all that preparatory work enables them now to build on them these apartments, these places of living. Likewise, likewise, we want that preparation work of remembering Jesus and confession enables us now to build this, this structure, this artifice of burden-bearing love in our lives. And so this week, our gospel reading gives us, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, a practical blueprint, a practical blueprint for how to practice such love. But before we look at the parable itself, let's see how Luke situates it within the interaction between Jesus and this lawyer. Look with me at verse 25, if you have your Bibles there. Luke says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Our reading opens with a sparring match of sorts between Jesus and this unnamed lawyer. And by this time in the gospel, Jesus' reputation precedes him, right? Wherever he goes, whether it's town or village or wherever he is, a crowd crowd gathers around him. His reputation precedes him. And in Jewish culture, when a, a teacher, a rabbi, visited a town, he was hosted by another rabbi, a local rabbi, a teacher of the law, a lawyer... He was hosted by this lawyer, and they would usually enter into some kind of a debate, a public debate about the law. And there was a protocol that governed this type of debate, a convention that governed it. And it went something like this. The hosting rabbi would stand up out of respect for the visiting rabbi and would ask him a question. Not an overly difficult question, but not a simple question. either, something to get the ball rolling. And then the visiting rabbi would answer the hosting rabbi, And then the hosting rabbi would respond with another question and so on and so on until that hosting rabbi found a chink in the intellectual armor of this visiting rabbi or until they they came to some kind of a stalemate. Kind of get the idea, the picture of of the protocol, the convention that was going on here. And so the lawyer begins in verse 25, standing as a sign of respect. Yet Luke reveals that he is not standing out of respect at all. Instead, this lawyer stands to test Jesus. This isn't a... This isn't like a, a, a warm, brotherly test, like, you know, love you, brother, let me, let me test you here. This is, this is a, a vicious kind of a thing that this lawyer is doing. So he stands kind of duplicitously to show respect, but yet he's doing this so that he can test Jesus. And ultimately, the lawyer's desire is to demonstrate that Jesus is not like him. Jesus is not like him, not an honored and respectable interpreter of the law. And this is, I mean, this is pretty vicious. This is pretty vicious stuff. And this comes out of, of the, the culture at the time in Israel being an honor-shame culture. And this lawyer is seeking to use that honor-shame culture to his own advantage. So if you were a person of honor in this culture, you were a person of value, well-regarded, respected. However, if you were not a person of honor, then you were not listened to nobody would listen to you, nobody would respect you, nobody would value you. And the thing is, at that time, the time when this parable uh, was told, the the thing is, at that time, the easy way to grow in honor, the easy way to grow in honor was to take it from someone else. Now, it really isn't all that different today, is it? And say, something like politics, this is low-hanging fruit here, something like politics, where One politician can go up in the polls often by exposing or shaming or revealing something about another politician, their opponent, which puts them in a bad light. And so we know what it is to some extent for us to increase our own honor by shaming someone else. And of course, we could easily go to social media in the various ways that we or people around us, not us, of course, but shame those around us that we can gain honor in, in the sight of others. So this lawyer is testing Jesus. He is trying to expose him as a false teacher. And in light of what we looked at last week, we would be wise to inquire whether this lawyer is operating from conceit. And so just tuck that away as we move on. So the lawyer asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And now eternal life at this time was an expression that captured for them the life of the coming age when God would restore all things. So in essence, so in essence this lawyer is asking, what do I have to do, Jesus? What do I have to do to enter into God's coming kingdom? Right? That's a good question, is it not? I mean, that's a good question. It's a basic question. And it gets at the core of Jesus' message that we see him preaching throughout the Gospels. Repent. For the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand, it's close by. Yet we know from Luke that this lawyer is hoping to trap Jesus, to expose Jesus, to test Jesus in some way that would show him to be a fraud, a false teacher of the law. And Jesus, no doubt perceiving this in the lawyer, refuses to play the game. He refuses to follow the protocol. And instead of answering the question... He actually poses his own question. So he breaks protocol. He says in verse 26, what is written in the law? That's a great question. What does the law say? How do you read it? So Jesus asks this lawyer. And the lawyer, somewhat stunned, certainly, by Jesus' response or his lack of answering that question, but rather posing the question, he responds in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself? That's a, good, that's a good answer, right? That's a bad answer? Is that a good answer? All right, that's a good answer. That's a good answer, right? That's Jesus' answer to that question in Matthew 22, the same one we just recited at the beginning of our liturgy this morning. The lawyer's answer sums up well the Ten Commandments, indeed the heart of the entire law. This guy, This guy knows his stuff. And Jesus, in fact, commends him for his answer in verse 28. You have answered correctly. But Jesus adds to this a word of instruction, a command. Do this. That's a great answer. Do this and you shall live. And now the lawyer, no doubt, saw himself as Jesus' equal, if not his superior. Jesus is not a person of formal training. He's kind of like this itinerant rabbi who's walking around dusty, not well-dressed, And so this guy maybe saw him as equal, but certainly saw himself likely as a superior. And remember, rabbis ask and answer questions of one another. They don't give each other instruction. They don't command. That's how a rabbi speaks to his disciples. That's how a rabbi speaks to his students. And so the lawyer then responds there in verse 29, beginning with how Luke sets this up. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? who is my neighbor? And again, Luke reveals for us the lawyer's internal motivations. He's not interested in understanding the law more deeply at all. He's not interested really in enacting the law and embodying it and obeying it at all. Rather, his concern is for his own reputation. Jesus has slighted him. He needs to justify himself now. He's concerned about his own reputation. He's concerned with projecting and protecting a certain image of himself and now we can clearly see, I think, and clearly identify that the lawyer embodies the type of conceit that Paul addressed in Galatians. Be careful. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Jesus is indeed here being provoked by this lawyer. But this lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, implies for him that there are some people, there are some people worthy of my love. Some people worthy of my love and others that are not because they are far below me. You know, those folks, if I were to love them, would bring my reputation down. The kind of love that's not just like spoken. I love everybody. But the kind of love that comes beside the person in need of love and binds them up, holds them up, touches them, cares for them, that kind of dirty love in the sense of like it's a messiness of it, the messiness of life. It's a clean and pristine love that can just say, I love everyone. And the lawyer is trying, he's implying here that there are people worthy of my love and there are people who are not worthy of my love, particularly those people who pose a threat to me, to my status, to my purity, whatever it may be. And a lawyer's question draws here upon Leviticus 19.18, which says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, right, your own ethnic group, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Leviticus 19.18 is identifying the neighbor as one who is a part of my ethnic group. And a lawyer exploits that ambiguity. Of course, what he doesn't Raise or doesn't draw into this conversation is Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34, where the law of Moses identifies the sojourner, the stranger, the foreigner residing in your midst. He's also your neighbor. You're also to love him as you love yourself. He doesn't do that. He's seeking to exploit the ambiguity with the identity of the neighbor here in Leviticus 19 in an attempt to put Jesus on the spot and to expose him as a false teacher. And as mentioned earlier, Jesus' reputation precedes him, and no doubt this lawyer knew and had heard of Jesus' radical teaching, his radical teaching that Luke records in chapter 6, verse 27, where Jesus says, Love your enemies. Not just love your neighbor, love your enemies, your brother, as well as the foreigner who resides in your midst, you know, the ones you hate. Love your enemies. And Israel had endured Greek and Roman overrule and oppression for hundreds of years now in the land of Israel and throughout the diaspora. And from the lawyer's perspective, it could not be generally assumed that those dwelling among the people of Israel were neighbors. And his reading of the law, neighbor referred to a faithful law-following Jew only, only, and not to unfaithful Jews, and certainly not to those Samaritans, Certainly not to those Gentiles, the Greeks and the Romans. They were the enemies of Israel. And so his only means at this point in this debate was to, to justify himself is to expose Jesus as teaching something, something contrary to the law or at least contrary to his understanding, the accepted understanding of the law at that time. You see, Jesus teaches to love your neighbors, but Leviticus 19.18 says love your neighbor. He teaches to love enemies, but Leviticus says love your neighbor. But is your faithful fellow Jew. And the lawyer wants to show that Jesus is a fraud. And so the lawyer, likely at this time, full of himself because he thought, I finally got Jesus where I want him, probably sits back a little bit, maybe leans against the post there in the town square, And has a smug look on his face and basically says, What do you got to say to that, Jesus? What do you got to say to that? Are you going to tell us what you told people earlier? Love your neighbors when the law says just, or love your enemies when the law says love your neighbors, your fellow Jew? Yet once again, once again, Jesus refuses to answer the question. He refuses to play by the rules with, with providing a simple statement. Rather, he tells a story. And while we do not have time here to parse out the story in any detail, I want us to see that Jesus gives us the Samaritan's actions, his actions, as a blueprint for how to practice burden-bearing love, the type of love that we talked about last week. And this blueprint stands in stark contrast to the actions of the priests and the Levite of the story that we heard read earlier when I read them in the midst of, of, of the congregation here. And in response to the man who had been robbed and beaten and left half dead on the ground, the priest and the Levite just stroll on by. Look at what they do. Here's their actions. They saw the man half dead. They passed by on the other side. That's their pattern of behavior when they encounter someone in need. See that? I don't want anything to do with it. I'm going to go over here. They saw the man, and they passed by on the other side. These men who are likely returning from their temple service— So, Levites and priests lived all throughout the land of Israel, and they would come to Jerusalem ever so often to give their service in the temple. But while they're not in the temple, while they're back in their hometowns, these guys are teaching the people. They don't just get like the rest of the year off for like 10 months, they have two months in the temple, and it's like 10 months vacation. No, they're in the middle of the people catechizing them, teaching them the law. They're lawyers, they're teachers of the law, they're scribes. And so, these guys are likely returning to their hometowns from serving in the temple, Just like this lawyer. They're just like this lawyer. They're the same class of this lawyer that we encounter. They're teachers of the law. And these men come in proximity to this suffering man and by their actions judge that he is not worthy. By their actions. Not that they said this in their heart. Not that they would say this. But by their actions, they said that this man is not worthy of our love. This man is stripped bare. He's probably likely in his undergarments. The outer garments were the only things of real value that they wore. So he's probably strict, bare in his undergarments. There's nothing to identify this man by. He is a Jew. Is he a Jew? We don't know. Is he a Gentile? We have no idea. Is he a Samaritan? I have no idea. Nothing to identify him. This is you can imagine if you're in an airport and you see a guy walking down. Uh, the corridor there and he's wearing cowboy boots and those those wranglers with the patch on the rear end and he's got a belt buckle and he's got a plaid shirt with those pearl buttons and he has a Stetson cowboy hat on you know and we know immediately that that guy is from Rhode Island I mean we know immediately he's from Rhode Island because our clothes tell us something about who we are where we come from what we do right our accents tell us about where we come from usually and and what we're about. There's nothing, none of that is available to these guys as they approach this, this man beaten. He's completely unidentifiable. And that was Jesus's point. That was Jesus's point. This man, whoever he is, is about to die. We don't know who he is, but he is about to die. Will you help him? That's kind of the, The pressure that's being placed on this lawyer in in the stories, he's hearing it. Will you help him? Will you love him? And as we see the priest and the Levite refuse to do so, it's interesting here that Luke does not give for us their motivation. Because we don't need their motivation. Jesus doesn't care about their motivation. Because they did not do mercy. That's what Jesus cares about. Doing mercy mercy. The motivations of the priests and the Levite ultimately do not matter, and neither do ours when we pass by someone refusing them help. Jesus doesn't care what your reasons were. Did you act justly? Did you love mercy? Did you walk humbly before me? That's what Jesus cares about. Our actions reveal our true character. In contrast, then, to these men, Jesus tells of a third man's encounter with a half-dead traveler, beginning there in verse 33, and you can follow along with me. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil. Oil would have been to loosen up the skin, and wine would have been to disinfect the wound. He poured on him oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And The next day, he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. I'll repay you when I come back. Notice here the blueprint of his actions in contrast to those of the priest and the Levite. He saw the man just just as the priest and the Levite did coming down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He saw the man, but he had compassion on him. He saw him, had compassion on him, and it didn't end there. Because true compassion, biblical compassion, Christian compassion, is never just a word only. It is always followed by action. He cared for him. He saw, he had compassion, and he cared for him. The Samaritan The enemy of the Jews saw the half-dead man, not knowing if he was a fellow Samaritan, not knowing if he was a Jew, saw this half-dead man, yet his sight was different. His sight was different. He did not see this half-dead man as a threat to his own status. He did not see him as a threat to his own physical or economic well-being. His eyes were not curved in on himself. He was not focused inwardly. He was not conceited. He did not think of himself more highly than he ought. And Jesus provides for us, though, in contrast to the priest and the Levite, He provides for us the motivating disposition that welled up in the Samaritan. Compassion is this thing that arises from the gut. It really has this—it's this word that kind of, the center of it, where it's found in the human body and their understandings—that comes from your very gut. That gut feeling that when you saw someone suffering like that. You know, you, you teared up. You, you have that gut level reaction. I need to run in there. I need to help. I need to help this person. I need to care for them. So Jesus gives us this motivating disposition that was welling up in the Samaritan. He had compassion. And if we were close readers of the Gospel of Luke, and if this morning we started in Luke chapter 1 and read all the way up to this portion of Luke, we would have heard two people only who had compassion. Two people only who had compassion. That is God the Father and Jesus. In Luke one seventy eight, in the Song of Zechariah, it says, because of the compassionate mercy of our God, the compassionate mercy of our God, God does X, Y, and Z. He loves and cares for us. You see, compassion motivates God the Father to acts of love and mercy. And then in Luke 7, chapter 7, Jesus encounters a widow whose son, her only living relative, the one who would take care of her, her son passes away, he dies. And in verse 13, Luke records, when the Lord saw her in her grief in her misery, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he raised her son from the dead. Compassion motivates Jesus, the son of God, to acts of love and mercy. When we see someone in need, When we see someone in need, are we compelled by the compassion of God to acts of love and mercy? Well, the simple way, according to Jesus, to determine if we really do have that sort of compassion, that sort of compassion that motivates us, is to look at what we do. Look at how we respond, or if we respond at all. Are we doing acts of love and mercy, or are we just passing by on the other side? Whether that person is a brother or sister caught in the transgression, that was the example of burden-bearing love that Paul gave in in Galatians chapter 6. That's an example of it. Or whether it's the the nosy neighbor, the nosy neighbor that you don't really like to engage with, whether they're going through a really difficult time and you don't want to pass by, even though you typically cut that conversation off early just to get back into your house. Or whether it's that bully of a co-worker who at this moment is going through profound loss and he has no one beside him because he's alienated in everyone in your workplace? Are you doing acts of love and mercy, or are you just passing by these folks? When we see them, whoever they are, lovable or unlovable, pure or impure, do we do acts of love and mercy, or do we pass by on the other side? You see, love and mercy are fruits of the Spirit. When we walk in step with the Spirit, as we looked at last week, We do acts of burden-bearing love, acts of love and mercy. And why do we do that? For Paul, it's because compassion motivates the spirit of God that dwells within us to have us do acts of love and mercy. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three of the Godhead, are motivated by compassion. Well, the Samaritan saw the half-dead man and had compassion on him, just like our covenant God has compassion on us. And his compassion produced acts of love and mercy, acts of burden-bearing love. And this burden-bearing love of the Samaritan is sacrificial and discerning. It's sacrificial and discerning. The Samaritan's burden-bearing love is defined by sacrifice. He sacrificed his safety. This was a dangerous road. Those robbers might still be looking around the corners waiting for someone to come to his aid. So they might jump out, beat him, strip him, take all his goods and services and go their way. Right? He sacrificed his safety. He sacrificed his finances. He gave up two denarii, two days worth of pay. And he entered into an open-ended relationship with the innkeeper to pay whatever expense it took to care for this man. And he also sacrificed his time. He took the time to stop, to bind up his wounds, to put him on his animal, to take him to an inn, to spend the rest of that entire day with him, making sure he made it through the night. And in the morning, he said, I have to leave, but I will come back. The man sacrificed his time. You see, our safety, our finances, and our time are not more important. They're not more important than Jesus' command to us at the end of this story, go and do likewise. But the Samaritan's burden-bearing love is not only sacrificial, it's also thoughtful. The Samaritan gave according to the man's needs. See, burden-bearing love requires a thoughtful compassion that discerns the true need a person has. Burden-bearing love is not simply a matter of throwing money at someone as you pass them in the road. Right? This is not burden-bearing love. Just take, 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 take five dollars. That's great, but that's not burden-bearing love burden-bearing love calls us into a closer relationship an intimacy with the half-dead man and his need in order to discern what is truly needed by that person it's messy you might get blood on you you might have someone jump you in the street yet at the same time at the same time a thoughtful compassion a discerning compassion is not an escape hatch well, they don't really need this or that, and I don't have what they actually need, so I'm just going to pass by on the side. A thoughtful compassion can sometimes be used as an escape hatch to pass someone by. Well, in some of this narrative, the lawyer wants to know who the select few. This is what the ultimate comes down to. He wants to know the select few who he has to love. Who does he have to love? But Jesus tells him through the Samaritans' example, let the neighbor be you. Let the neighbor be you. Who was a neighbor to this man? Rather than worrying if someone else is a neighbor, Jesus calls us to be a neighbor to those who have need, period, full stop. By reversing the perspective of the question, Jesus changes both the question and the answer. He makes the call no longer one of assessing other people. That's what conceit does but of being a certain kind of person in one's actions, in what we do, acts of love and mercy. And this is the blueprint of actions that Jesus gives us for the burden-bearing love that describes the kind of person Jesus calls us to be as his disciple. See the hurting person. See them. Have compassion on them, the compassion that God has had for you, and do acts of love and mercy in response that are sacrificial and thoughtful. And if you feel like Jesus' blueprint for burden-bearing love is too much, it's just beyond us. If you're not not up to this task, you're in good company. It's beyond all of us. We are unable in ourselves to love as the Samaritan loved this half-dead man because the Samaritan himself is the image of Jesus. He's an image of Jesus and his burden-bearing love. And Jesus tells this story as he is on the road, not away from Jerusalem, but to Jerusalem, where he will sacrifice his safety, his wealth, and his time, and be crucified. He's heading to Jerusalem because humanity, you and I, have fallen in with robbers, the world, the flesh, and the devil, who have stripped us bare and beaten us, who have left us captive and half dead on the road. Yet Jesus... He took human flesh, our flesh, and found us on the road. He had compassion on each one of us. He sacrificed his life for ours. He has poured oil and water into us and our wounds. We have received the sacrament of holy of the only begotten son that heals and brings new life. We have been raised up to new life, resurrection, and placed on his mule We have believed that Christ came in the flesh, died in the flesh, and has been raised to new life in the flesh. And we have been brought by him into the inn where his spirit is the innkeeper, the church. And we are being healed here week in and week out in the church by his grace in order to go out on the road ourselves, bringing with us the compassion of God so that we may give to those who are hurting whether in our neighborhood or in our workplaces or wherever we find ourselves, the ointment, drink, and food of new and unending life in Jesus. All of this is beyond us, beyond us. We are unable in ourselves to love as Jesus loved, yet he does not leave us to ourselves. And for that, we can say amen. He gives us his spirit, and he sets us within a family, a church, so that we may love and learn to love as he loved us with a burden-bearing love. Therefore, Christchurch, brothers and sisters, by the power of the Spirit that is in you, walking in step with the Spirit, go and do likewise. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.